And now, gentlemen, <clears throat> our business over. We're coming to the thing that we've come here tonight to hear. About a year ago, in fact, a little less than a year ago, remember the Civil War Roundtable, one of our honored members and a man who we all loved, Dr. Randall, passed away. So it is certainly fitting tonight that we meet in his honor, and we have this program planned this evening, which is centered around uh, his, uh, has Lincoln, has the Lincoln theme been exhausted? Ralph Newman and the gentleman here at the head table will, are formed as a panel, and they will discuss this, each one handling one particular phase of it, and then we'll get into the discussion that all of you gentlemen can enter into after that. Frankly, uh, this is a, it's been quite a long time, certainly not in my membership in the club, that um, we have had uh, a discussion of this kind. It goes back, as Ralph told me, to the early, the early years in the Civil War Roundtable when they got together and had these fine discussions, which we have perhaps missed a little bit too much in the last uh, few years. But tonight we're going back to it. I heard someone say outside that uh, it, uh, there might be a few carried out, there might be a few hard uh, uh, feelings, but uh, actually that isn't true. We, we love to get together and discuss this uh, uh, subject that we all think so much of, and I'm sure that when we get through with our meeting tonight that this is going to be something that we'll long remember. So with that, I turn the meeting over to our moderator, Ralph Newman, and from that on, he'll take over. Thank you very much, Ralph. It's 18 years since Jim Randall's article, Has the Lincoln Theme Been Exhausted, appeared in the American Historical Review. For the benefit of those of you who have not read the article or who don't remember it, I just want to read a few of the opening sentences. Jim said, a foreign wit has been quoted as saying that America is the only nation that has passed from barbarism to decadence without passing through civilization. Attempting no comment on this startling statement, one might ask whether Lincoln authorship shall pass from its present imperfect state to decadence without undergoing further critical development by historically trained scholars. Lincoln might seem the most overworked subject in American history. At that point, I will cease quoting Dr. Randall because further discussion on that point is the business of the evening. Last October, there appeared in print an excellent article by Bob Woody, the History Department of Duke University, the October 1850, 1953 issue of the South Atlantic Quarterly. The title was The Inexhaustible Lincoln. The article was inspired mainly by the publication of the magnificent complete works, of, collected works of Lincoln and the Thomas biography of Lincoln and Ruth Randall's book on Mary Lincoln. Dr. Woody felt that the theme indeed had not been exhausted. The field had been really opened up for further researches. It's my job to get out of the way of the combatants as soon as possible. And all I want to do at this point is lay down some of the rules to govern this battle. The speakers 
and this applies to everyone, whether you're on the panel or will participate later, will come up to the microphone to speak. You must be recognized and come up here. We want everything on tape. And you must stick to your subject. And by that I mean the subject is, has the Lincoln theme been exhausted? It's the Lincoln, not Civil War theme, we are discussing. And if you wander off the limits of this subject, you will be warned or stopped. And I think it would be most appropriate at this point to illustrate what I have in mind, to quote a baseball story that the late Judge Bollinger, whose collection of Lincolniana is now on the State University of Iowa, story he loved so much he got it from Lloyd Lewis. And any time any of us in the Lincoln field, particularly Paul Angle, Ben Thomas, or Harry Pratt, or I would see him, he'd like to hear the Hornsby story again. As Lloyd told the story, back in 24, when Hornsby was the most feared batsman in the National League, and batting 420 for the Cardinals, toward the end of the season, in a game with the Phillies, in the later innings of the game, with a couple of men on base, Hornsby came to bat. And there was a young relief pitcher, Jumbo Elliott, pitching for the Phillies. He had never faced Hornsby before. Bill Clem was the umpire. Elliot wound up and threw a blazing fastball that just barely missed the corner of the plate. Hornsby, who never swung at a bad ball in his life, didn't even move a muscle. And Clem called the ball. Elliot was displeased, but being a rookie, realized his place and wound up again. The second ball hurtled towards the plate. And again, just barely missed. It might have been called a strike by another umpire, but not by Bill Clem. It was ball two. This time, Elliot showed his displeasure and started down toward the mound, toward the plate, but Clem waved them back. Pitch your ball game. He wound up a third time. And again, the ball just missed the plate. And again, Clem called ball three. And this time, Elliot was really upset. But as he raced toward the plate to have words with Clem, Clem wandered out said, young man, pitch your ball game. He threw the next pitch right across the heart of the plate. And Harnsby swung and sent the ball flying over the left field wall. And as the three men circled the base on this home run, Clem walked slowly out to the mound and said, young man, when the ball is over the plate, Mr. Harnsby will let you know. <laughs> and gentlemen, please remember this for the rest of the evening. It's most appropriate in opening this meeting, which is a memorial to a beloved friend of most of us, a fellow member of the round table, that we don't open on a battle note, but call on one of Jim Randall's dearest friends, one of his pupils, himself, a most distinguished member of the Lincoln fraternity, to say a few words about Dr. Randall. We're very happy to have here tonight one of our fellow members, Dr. Harry E. Pratt, Illinois State Historian. Dr. Pratt. The date of his birth would be known by his name, James Garfield Randall. Born in 1881, died a year ago tomorrow. A timid man, primarily, 
who still loved meetings with men who were interested in his subject. He was a graduate of Butler, took his master's and doctor's here at the University of Chicago, taught at Illinois College and at various schools in the East for short terms, especially in the summertime. But primarily, we think of him as a University of Illinois professor, where he came in 1917 and taught until he retired in 1949. Uh, I had Randall in both undergraduate and in graduate work. He did a pretty good job of lecturing, uh, just about average. It was in seminars where he was outstanding, where there was a small group and they could talk about the thing that interested him the most. I think he was a top teacher in graduate seminars. Uh, the reason that everybody liked him, everybody respected his knowledge, he was respectful of you and what you had to offer in the class. Perhaps because we're to stay on the subject of Lincoln, we shouldn't mention that he wrote a book on the Civil War. But he did write the famous text, Civil War and Reconstruction, which was a standard text for some 15 years and brought him considerable in the way of royalties. A book that was good enough to have some slight revisions last year and is still used in a great many schools. One of the finest indexed books in the whole textbook field. Randall was a great maker of indexes, which is a difficult job, but it makes a splendid book when it is done. It's the regret, of course, of everybody in the Lincoln fraternity that he did not finish his four-volume Life of Lincoln. The first two volumes came out, of course, in 1945 and were acclaimed. Now, those two volumes differ from most of the biographies of Lincoln in that they were based on original research. When Randall came to Urbana in 1917, he took an apartment where Mrs. Randall still lives. And I saw the apartment over the years fill up with black boxes full of notes. I think he searched nearly all of the large Civil War collections and the large Lincoln collections. One of the interesting developments in his life, I heard him say some things about Carl Sandburg. I don't think they understood each other. They went down different paths in their writings until the summer of 47 when they opened the Lincoln papers. And they both stayed on and worked in the Library of Congress and became the dearest of friends, and the last man to see Randall and talk with him a few minutes before he died was Carl Sandburg, a very, very treasured few minutes in Randall's life. The third volume was not up to the standard of the first two, the book that came out midstream. Randall was fortunate in the graduate students that he had to work for him. He had the pick of the entire graduate school of the American history students. And I think he was very fortunate in the last one he had, a young man named Wayne Temple, I think, who will go a long way in the historical field. And Temple was like all those who preceded him, David Donald and others, they came to regard Randall more or less as a father and son combination. <coughs> and it was too bad that only ten chapters of the last, the fourth volume, were done at the time of Randall's death. Now there is one <coughs> word of explanation that should be made because of the statement made in the New York Times last Sunday in introducing Ruth Painter Randall, his wife, 
wherein it said that she was a noted Civil War authority. Mrs. Randall makes no such claims. In fact, Mrs. Randall had very little interest in history. She was intensely interested in her husband and his career, but was not interested in history as such. Until the Lincoln papers were opened in that summer, they spent two months in Washington, and she got interested in the subject of Mrs. Lincoln. And she became so much interested in that subject that she took away from him the use of his graduate student and practically all of his time. And her book on Mrs. Lincoln came out in his fourth volume on Lincoln did not come out. Now that explanation I make, it may seem peculiar to you, but there's been questions asked again and again uh, about the situation. Now those 10 chapters, we hope, will be finished into the fourth volume. It would be a shame to leave it up in air. And as soon as the one of the professors at the university finishes a biography of Webster, he is promised to go on and do that work, which we hope will complete and give us that four volumes. Uh, Randall was at his best, just as I think Alan Nevins is at his best, when he has to sit down and write a lecture which summarizes all of his study of the many years and compress it all into a lecture of 40 to 50 minutes. Uh, Randall did that very, very well in a series of lectures he made at the uh, Louisiana State University, which was published in a little book called Lincoln in the South. It's one of those things like Nevin's recent three lectures that he gave at Virginia. You sit down, you don't expect much, and you read it over, and before you really got started, you're immersed in it. And one of those things that you want to read again and do read again, because there you get the essence of what a man comes to after many, many years of study. Now, Randall's notes his photostats, all of the material that belonged to him, will eventually go to the Library of Congress. Uh, just one thing, when he came to the university and began to teach, uh, they had no Lincoln material. They've since acquired, of course, a large Lincoln collection uh, given to them by Mr. Horner, who's a graduate of the university. But the best thing are the, the photostats of materials that he picked out of the collections all over the United States which have been assembled there and provide material for the future generations of students that have come. I found him a delightful personality. I had a chance when Everts B. Green left in 1920 to do a peculiar typing job on a tribute to Green and spent a great deal of time in their apartment in the years after that and came to admire him a great deal. I suppose he meant more to me because I never knew my father. To begin the discussion, 18 years after Jim Randall started it, has the Lincoln theme been exhausted? We will call on the secretary of this organization, a gentleman who has been a newspaper man, is now an encyclopedist. I hope that's the word. Sounds impressive. He is the only gentleman in this organization who has the courage to constantly wear a beard, and I'm sure that his remarks from now on will show that courage. Pete Long. I don't think anyone need say very much more about 
Jim Randall and Harry has done so ably. And I hope that we can continue his work that he started in this little pamphlet so beautifully so many years ago. May seem like a left-handed way to do it when I state that at least as far as I can see, the general public at the present time needs no more books about Lincoln. Yes, there are a lot of minor facets, lesser minutiae that should be gone into, will be gone into by many of you gentlemen. Things that'll interest all of you. The average <coughs> book buyer has his Ben Thomas. He has and will have one volume, Sandberg. And for the next few years, they've had almost too much. Maybe uh, a few more of them, will be, the present books will be read if we don't give them any more. By the time of the forthcoming 100th anniversary, we can start to look over the thing again as far as the general public is concerned. By this time, a new generation will have, readers will have arisen. It'll be a good time to review the entire period. Well, every generation, as has often been said, has to write its own history, write its own biography. And certainly, that must be true of Lincoln. Of course, there will always be a certain amount of Lincoln literature. We want to keep it going. He'll never be forgotten. That's hardly possible. But let's create a small appetite through articles, through various uh, organizations like this. But let's leave the general biographies for the next generation. Turning briefly to the military situation, it too has been pretty well covered in a general way. Ballard, which has recently been reprinted, and the two Williams books. Now let not anyone assassinate me just yet, but Kenny P. Williams, unfinished and soon to be finished set, uh, is extremely controversial, as you all know. But it is a great contribution, at least in my opinion, to the Lincoln field as well as the military subject. Um, the other Williams book, the gentleman will speak to you next week, or next month, is a, a very competent book, and of course the Ballard book um, on the generalship of Lincoln is again a, a little odd theme that many people uh, disagree with. Uh, Lincoln is a great strategist, Lincoln is a great tactician. But uh, the subject has been well covered. Now, digressing for a moment, there is work to be done in the Civil War field, but how much of it needs to be pointed straight at Lincoln. I will leave it for someone else to discuss the cabinet, the political figures, and so on around him. But as far as the generals are concerned, we know of his relationship with Grant, with Sherman, and so on. And of course, the McClellan story has been covered over and over again. At least until the time of the anniversary, maybe even then, it's likely to be just rehashed to do any more. Uh, one gentleman who wished he could be here tonight is Franklin J. Miney probably a leading authority on Lincoln and his humor, and humor in general. You may have seen an article last week in the Saturday Evening Post, which gave some very interesting stories of Lincoln. And I would like to speak for a moment on behalf of Mr. Mining. Here is a subject that he feels, and through him I feel, needs work. Lincoln, humor. There is no overall picture of the humor of Lincoln. Yes, there are books on the cartoons, excellent ones, books on the political jokes, and so on. 
But the overall picture, north and south, pro and con, has never actually been covered. Lots of stories are credited to Lincoln, which he never told. And so on, he probably told a lot that aren't credited to him. There's great need of work uh, on Lincoln humor in the newspapers and periodicals. And again, not just the uh, drawings and cartoons. Um, various aspects of how Lincoln was handled. And uh, Mr. Manning told me just this afternoon that one of the most interesting of those would be the stories told about him in the South. Some of them were undoubtedly pretty extreme. There we have it. The general public, not in the need of any more biographies or any more overall studies at the moment, but some specialized work which perhaps could interest the general public, such as Lincoln and his humor. I don't think that Pete meant to <coughs> affect the business of a certain here unnamed bookshop in advocating a secession of the publication of Lincoln books. But I heartily agree with you. But Pete, you're just hoping for something hopeless. I recall that in 1940, several of us, I know Harry was in the group, took a pilgrimage across the Lincoln Trail, starting at Cumberland Gap where the Lincolns had crossed into Kentucky. We went through Kentucky, Indiana, Illinois, ending our pilgrimage at the tomb. On the trip, there was a particularly obnoxious individual who at almost every point of interest along the trip would have something derisive to say about Mr. Lincoln. It became very, very aggravating to me, and I'm sure it was the same to other people. One night at Rockport, Indiana, where we had stopped to spend the night, I asked Stuart McClellan, then president of the university, just why this bird was sounding off as he did. And Stuart, who was a most understanding man, said, Ralph, it's very simple. We all try to make Mr. Lincoln what we are. The Baptist would like to prove Mr. Lincoln was a Baptist, and the free silver men always wanted to prove Lincoln believed in free silver. I'm sure the world federalists are convinced that Lincoln was a world federalist, and this man wants to prove that he was a bastard. <laughs> I suggest that the only cure for the publication of Lincoln books rests with you, the buyer. I have no confidence at all in the editorial judgment of publishers. I don't know what the basis of their selectivity is. Every year we see books published in the Lincoln field that are absolutely unnecessary. And I don't even mind it so much if they repeat all the things that have been printed so many times. The least they could do would be accurate about it. They could send the manuscript to Harry Pratt, and for $100, I'm sure he would save them several thousand dollars in <laughs> lost sales. They might even write to a certain Chicago bookseller and ask him if he thinks the book would sell. In the next few weeks, there'll be published a one-volume facsimile reprint of Pittman's Conspiracy Trial, and Mr. Frank will discuss the book. But the only thing I subscribe is that the oculists of America must have subsidized this because it's the most miserably printed book and you can't possibly read it without suffering eye strain. No other reason exists for its publication, and Seymour, I'm sure, will prove it. The next gentleman on this program has been treasurer of the Civil War Roundtable. This is in some ways a novelty. This is one of the few times he will appear before this guest group 
and not discuss the Gettysburg Address. Bill Herzog. The Lincoln theme is <clears throat> always interesting. And in my own opinion, has not been exhausted. I think each generation will interpret their own Abraham Lincoln. Ralph asked me this evening to discuss whether the drama, the stage play, has been, <clears throat> have we had enough of that? If he's referring to Lincoln in Illinois or Lincoln at New Salem, my goodness, we really have. I would like to see a drama of Lincoln the four years as president of the United States. I think it would make a very interesting story. All of the Lincoln plays I have seen, Raymond Massey, Frank McGlynn, it happened to fall to me about 10 years ago that I reviewed a book by Frank McGlynn, who played the leading character part in the play Abraham Lincoln. He played it before well over three million people, and it was a very magnificent play. Then he got the bright idea that he was going to undo all the good that he did by writing a biography of Abraham Lincoln, and he certainly wasn't qualified for that. I said so in the review. It was simply a rehash of everything that had gone before for many years. Nothing new, just a rehash. I would like to see a stage play by Raymond Massey with Mr. Lincoln discussing the preliminary emancipation. I would like to see the characters representing the cabinet. I'd like to see that hard-boiled tomato can Stanton and see what he had to say. And I think it would be very interesting. I would like also to see Mr. Lincoln in the preparation of some of his great documents. For instance, the letter <coughs> he wrote to General Hooker. What a magnificent thing that is. Lincoln wrote over 30 letters to General Hooker. The one that has become famous is commonly known as the Hooker Letters. It notified Hooker that he had been given command of the Army of the Potomac, replacing Burnside following the latter's calamitous defeat at Fredericksburg in 19. 41, that letter sold for $15,000. In 1924, it had sold for $10,000. And while the magnificent character sketch of the writer itself, that alone had not given it its great value. The remarkable part of this letter lies in the fact that it is a magnificent character sketch of the man himself. The letter, as you know, is one of really the, the Lincoln great documents. I would like to see what prompted him to write that letter. I'd like to see the office of the White House in which he wrote that letter, along with his first inaugural address. Why should there not be a patient confidence in the ultimate justice of the people? Is there anything better or equal in the world? In our present differences, is either party without faith of being in the right? The almighty ruler of nations with his eternal truth and justice be on your side of the north or yours of the south? That truth and that justice will surely prevail by the judgment of this great tribunal, the American people. Under the frame of the government by which we live, this same people have wisely given its public servants but little power for mischief, and have with equal wisdom provided for the return of that little in their own hands at short intervals. I would like to see him making his farewell address at the second inaugural, and I would like also to see him, even if we have <coughs> no authority that he wrote the letter to Mrs. Bigsby, and I think perhaps that it's an authentic letter, I would like to see him in this preparation of his letter to Fanny McCullough, one of the most remarkable things I think that he ever did. 
All of this could be shown in Lincoln's four years in the White House. And then to end it up, I would like to see the tragic events of April 14th and 1865 at 20 minutes after 10. And I think Otto Eisenschimmel could be called upon there to really make it real. We've had a lot of biographies. I was just reading when Ralph told me about uh, this assignment about uh, two weeks ago. When it comes to, to biographies, in 1892, I think that's 62 years ago, the Boston Transcript came out immediately following the 10-volume publication by Nicolay and Hay. Now remember, this is 62 years ago, and I'll try and remember what they said. There is now off of the press a 10-volume ten, biography by Nicolay and Hay, who certainly knew their Abraham Lincoln. This story covers everything about Abraham Lincoln that the world need know for now and all prosperity. I think since then there have been well over 3,000 biographies on Abraham Lincoln, and I think that in the next 60 years there probably will be as many, because I am convinced that each generation will interpret their own Abraham Lincoln. But what we need is dramatization of Abraham Lincoln, not under-dramatizing, not over-dramatizing. There's enough about Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln was not a demagogue to me. He was just a great American with all the frailties and all of the honors that came to any man. But I think I would like to see this on the stage by some great character who could well depict that. Bill, my only worry is that this great drama doesn't deteriorate to a soap opera in which Lincoln is constantly writing letters on TV and sponsored by Parker and Sanford, Inc. <laughs> in the essay by Dr. Randall that we are discussing, he stated that the historian must hew to the line in treating Lincoln material. Not only must he be free from party and sectional bias, he must be innocent of the hero tradition. Not only must he be free from party and sectional bias, he must be innocent of the hero tradition. If Lincoln emerges as a hero, well and good. But Lincoln should not be exempt from critical historical treatment, and hero worship should not be the path of approach. Our next speaker has worked in the Lincoln theme and along new lines. A few years ago, many of us were privileged to read his Two Friends of Man, a book about William Lloyd Garrison and Wendell Phillips and the relationship to Lincoln and the slavery question. He has now been engaged since the completion of that work on a book on that most controversial figure in the Lincoln administration, Thaddeus Stevens. We thought that he would be the perfect man to appear here on this program. You won't all agree with what Ralph Korngold has to say, but I can assure you it's backed by the most meticulous research. 
and I'm certain that if we haven't had an argument up to now, we will have one. Ralph Cornwell. I consider I have sufficient respect for Lincoln so that anything I say I wanted to write down first and, and uh, look it over carefully. To the question, has the Lincoln theme been exhausted? My reply is, as far as critical appraisal is concerned, it has hardly been touched. Absolute objectivity in history may be an unattainable ideal, but where is the line to be drawn between history and fiction if historians and biographers permit themselves to ignore important evidence which, if taken into account, would materially change the picture? Lincoln was a great man, no doubt about that. But was he quite as faultless as his biographers have made him out to be? Montaigne has said, for the uses of man, even gold has to be alloyed with baser metal. Was there no baser metal in Lincoln? Was he all pure gold as to character and statesmanship? It is significant that Lincoln's most renowned foreign biographer, Lord Chanwood, believed there were facets of Lincoln's character that justified Wendell Phillips in referring to him as a first-rate, second-rate man. As for his statesmanship, he considered him inferior to Chatham and even to Palmerston. In the time allotted to me, it is impossible to go into detail. I will say nothing, however, that if given the opportunity, I could not substantiate with reliable evidence for the most part, documentary evidence. There is documentary evidence to the effect that Lincoln was not nearly as humanitarian as his biographers have made him appear. There were times when he suppressed his humanitarian impulses for the sake of gain and political ambition. There is likewise documentary evidence to the effect that although known as Honest Abe, he was not above saying one thing in one place and the exact opposite in another whenever he believed it to be to his political advantage to do so. After he became president, he at times contradicted himself in such extraordinary fashion that his biographers have not even tried to reconcile his statements, but have simply selected what suited them best at any given time. 
When one examines Lincoln's policy before he became president, clear up to the time when he had nearly reached the half-century mark, one is shocked at his racial prejudice. Not only was he opposed to giving free Negroes any political rights, but he was in favor of turning the clock back more than three quarters of a century and depriving them of what few rights they possessed. Perhaps the most questionable decision ever handed down by the Supreme Court was the Dred Scott decision. Lincoln enthusiastically concurred in the most questionable part of that decision. In his oration, on Henry Clay, Lincoln expressed the opinion that immediate general emancipation was a greater evil than slavery itself. It was his conviction that the two races could not live together in freedom in the same country. This conviction remained with him throughout his life. Only a few weeks before his death, he asked General Butler to make a survey concerning the possibility of deporting all Negroes in the United States to Central America. It has always appeared strange to me that it should not have occurred to historians that his belief concerning the, impo concerning the impossibility of the two races living together in freedom in the same country, was at least as much responsible for his reluctance to issue the Emancipation Proclamation as his desire to conciliate the border state. Was it wise to drive fugitive slaves from the Union line and even returned them to the rebel owners at a time when Negroes were so badly needed as auxiliaries with the Confederate Army that the Confederates used to make raids into the border states to carry off slaves? Yet that policy was continued until in July 1862, Thaddeus Stevens made a threatening speech in Congress putting the blame at the door of the president himself. That same month, Lincoln wrote to Cuthbert Bullitt that the policy had to be abandoned as otherwise Congress might refuse to vote appropriations for the army. Another policy of Lincoln that tended to prolong the war was his belief which he expressed in unmistakable language to the Chicago delegation of clergymen that the Negro was worthless as a soldier. Here again, Thaddeus Stevens forced his hand by threatening to introduce the bill to draft all able-bodied Negroes in the border states, slaves as well as freemen. Later, Lincoln reversed himself and even said that without the 200,000 colored soldiers in the, Union, in the Union Army, the war might have been lost. Regarding emancipation, I shall only say that there exists 
documentary evidence of the most reliable nature proving that Lincoln was forced to issue the Emancipation Proclamation by the 37th Congress and especially by Thaddeus Stevens. Having been forced to issue it, he tried to subvert it, thus precipitating what almost amounted to a revolt in the Republican Party. <coughs> I called attention to that evidence in my volume Two Friends of Men. Professor Louis Filler of Antioch College wrote in the American Historical Review, quote, Mr. Korngold's major contribution has been to revive for consideration serious problems which deserve the attention of scholars and laymen both. On this score, he can be neither patronized nor legitimately ignored, unquote. I regret to say that with only one exception, the eminent historians who reviewed the volume abstained from breathing a word about that part of the book, thus conclusively demonstrating that the maintenance of the Lincoln legend is nearer to their hearts than historical truth. I am fully aware that Lincoln's qualities, both as a man and as a statesman, outweigh his shortcomings. If I have made no mention of them, it is because it is, it is his faults, not his virtues, that have been hidden from public view. Even those who, like Beveridge, have objectively reported some of Lincoln's actions, which are, were far from being to his credit, have failed to draw the logical conclusions from them as far as his character and his policies were concerned. In their attempt, to make Lincoln appear all wise, his biographers have made his contemporary critics appear as either fools or knaves. This is an entirely false picture. The fact is that political leadership during the war did not come from the White House, but from the Capitol. Lincoln was false to abandon his entire political program, enforcement of the fugitive slave law, his 37-year gradual emancipation plan with the right on the part of the slave states to restore slavery whenever they chose, his opposition to the employment of Negroes as soldiers, the colonization of Negroes abroad, his opposition to the adoption of a constitutional amendment abolishing slavery, he was forced to abandon all this and to adopt the program Thaddeus Stevens had advocated from the beginning of the war. It may well be that Lincoln himself would have objected to the way his biographers have distorted history to make him appear what he was not. Herndon quotes him as saying, quote, Biographies, as generally written, are not only misleading but false. In most instances, they commemorate a lie and cheat posterity of the truth. History is not history unless it is the truth." Unquote.
It's interesting to note that in his article, Dr. Randall said, the interpreter of Lincoln must consider not only qualities, but degrees of qualities. Not only whether Lincoln was an opportunist, but whether his opportunism exceeded what would seem necessary to every practical leader in an imperfect world, and whether it involved a surrender of ideals. Mr. Korngold very ably touched on this subject, and we shall hear more of it later. Our next speaker is a former president of the Round Table, and since we have one-year terms, the room is just lousy with former presidents. But he's cut out a particular field for himself in the Lincoln story. Many of you are familiar with the magnificent and awe-inspiring official records of the War of the Rebellion. These 128 volumes of the military activities are a work unique in the recording of war history. A few brave souls here have been courageous enough to acquire these 128 volumes, each the size of a large city telephone directory, and bring them home and confront their wives with this. It hasn't been easy, even for a bookseller. Our next speaker did more than that. He acquired two sets and made his wife like it and set out to become one of the leading authorities on the official records. I believe he has consulted the official records and read them more carefully than any man in the Lincoln field. He's the man we turn to when we want information. It's very comforting to have a man in your organization and a friend who knows the official records because then we no longer have to use them. It's easier to call Joe Eisendrath, and that's just what we'll do now. Joe. The second set of official records didn't last very long. I got rid of them. Uh, before I go into the official records, there's one little facet that I think that you might be considering. One of the things that I'm often asked when people find out that I'm interested in Lincoln, what do you think of him? What is your opinion of him? Was he a humanitarian? Was he this? Was he that? Uh, my first answer is I found an awful lot of myth about him. But I respect Lincoln mostly, and in my opinion, for this one reason, that he was perhaps the most astute politician that we have ever known in this country. And that... Uh, puts him in first place over even Franklin D. Roosevelt, who had quite a reputation for that same thing. Uh, in order to become an astute politician, he had to develop. We have a man who, in my opinion, was the most peculiar individual. He had peculiarities. We're all familiar with some of them. And we don't understand some of the things and why he did it and why he didn't do it. Uh, I think it all stems back to the fact that when he was a younger man, or even in his maturity, when he was a lawyer traveling the circuits, uh, he had plenty of time to get in touch with other people and get their views. Now, Harry Pratt and Paul Angle and Ben Thomas are all familiar and have done work on the book which all Lincoln students are familiar with, the day-by-day -day activities. 
It's a book that was published in four volumes, and it shows where he was on certain days and what he did. Since those books were published, there have been many corrections made, many new uh, paragraphs added, and Harry will show you page after page of penwritten changes, so much so that somebody should see that those are reprinted. They go up to the time he became president. That's 52 years of his life. As a youngster, of course, we don't know much about what he did on, uh, with his life. You don't keep records of a three and four-year-old boy, or a 10 or a 12 or a 15-year-old boy, especially an unimportant boy out in the prairies. But as he became a member of the Illinois legislature and an attorney and traveled among the counties, uh, we find in these day-by-day -day records more and more of his daily activities. And the one thing that strikes me uh, astonishing is that in these books of day-by-day -day activities, you'll come to Sundays. And I would say that of 52 years of Sundays in Abraham Lincoln's life, perhaps there aren't recorded more than 100 Sundays that uh, we know anything what he did. Well, some of you will say, Sunday a man doesn't do much. I say no. I say when Lincoln stayed out on the circuit on Sundays, he did something. He helped his political career to a great extent. And it's always been a fascination to me to find out what happened on these Sundays we don't know anything about. Now here's Sunday, it's one day out of seven. We're talking about a seventh of a man's life. We don't know a seventh of Lincoln's life, practically speaking. Uh, when I started the Lincoln Field and got into it and learned a little about it, Ralph Newman gave me some pretty good advice. He said, if you want to learn something about a man, learn about the men who were around him. Get hold of their biographies. They're sure to have something about him in there. I think that around here in Illinois and down around the Springfield country, in some of the attics and family possessions, you'll find all kinds of records of people who knew Lincoln that we are not familiar with. Certainly, the lawyers who traveled on the circuit must have had some kind of record which they left with their families. I would like to have the time and the funds to go around and see if I couldn't dig some of that stuff out. There's, there's one of the things where I think that the Lincoln picture can really come forward. The uh, growth of the man is so fantastic over this period of time. It's just remarkable how he came from almost nothing, you might say, to the prominent national figure he was and became elected president. No one had ever heard of him up to four or five years for practical purposes before he became the candidate for president. I'd say that you'll find plenty of material. But getting back just a second, uh, getting away from that, I should say, to my subject of the official records. Uh, as Ralph said, there are 128 books, big, thick books, 12, 1,500 pages each. I think there are 138,000 pages in the Army records. The Naval records were not quite as, as lengthy. There are only 35,000 35, pages and are 30 volumes. Uh, in order to, to bring my point out, I, I, I'll have to give you just a little history of the official records. Every Army officer is 
governed by red tape. He has to make reports. He has to send them in. He has to keep a copy of what he sends in in case he's ever called on to verify it. Uh, in all military maneuvers, uh, this paperwork comes to a central point. It's usually the adjutant general of the army who has charge of such reports. Every captain of a company, every major, every colonel, every general, every brigadier in command of a brigade, and so on down the line, was required to make his reports on specific engagements. Uh, the official records is compiled of reports of that nature by the participants, both North and South. They were started in 1864 by an act of Congress appropriating a certain amount of money to begin the compilation of them. And the job was assigned to, naturally, the Adjutant General's office, certainly not trained historians. They began, they brought out a skeleton set and uh, found that they were just being swamped with reports they didn't use. The uh, Army got further appropriation from Congress and continued to get annual appropriations over a period of 30 years. And various teams of men over this period of 30 years worked on these books. They uh, started in about 64, they ended up in the 90s. And uh, you can imagine that no man would work 30 years. I mean, a man would die, he would be retired from the army, someone would take his place. None of these men was a trained historian as we know a trained historian today. And it was their job to go through a tremendous mass of material to pick out something therefrom that would be useful and to be put into these records. To give you some idea of the immensity of, of collecting and collating this, this material and preparing it uh, is realized when you inspect the methods used. The greater part of these papers were in duplicate and sometimes in triplicate. They had letter books, they had the originals, they had the received telegrams and so on. All these had to be examined for authenticity and to guard against duplication. And there's a tremendous amount of duplication in the official records, in spite of it. These papers that they used were but a tiny fraction, a real small fraction of the amount that they rejected as either immaterial of no historical interest, as judged by the standards that they set up for themselves. These papers that they examined weren't counted by the piece or by the box, but they actually amounted to tons, tons of papers, roomfuls, and even the entire contents of buildings were taken up with the storage of these Civil War papers. For example, the volunteer records uh, filled a four-story warehouse, and the Confederate records, which you can imagine were scarce and originally were only 90 trunkfuls, occupied a three-story building. The records of the Adjutant General's office at that time occupied a third of the old War Department building, which was a pretty big building even in those days. The military telegrams that they examined were unbelievably countless. For example, there's one collection of Union dispatches that had over two million telegrams in it and the papers of the various offices and bureaus from the thousands of individual contributions of people who knew that they were engaged in that work came together from all over the country. Collections were donated. In the 70s, collections were purchased, and uh, 
uh, loaned and used. When they used anything for the official records, they put a rubber stamp on them, copied. Now today, the bulk of these records, as I have been able to find out, are still extant. And they're available for use in the National Archives. Now, the uh, National Archives operates on a very limited budget. Up to last yeah. November, if you wanted to find a military record of a soldier, you could write to the Adjutant General's office inside of a week, you'd have it. Now it takes three months from the archives, and then they can't always find it. How do you pay for it, Joey? Now, you can pay for it. They offer a service, or they make it available for your own inspection if you got the time to go down there and look for it. When I started going through the official records, I was struck by the uh, great number of times that Lincoln's name was mentioned in there. And uh, that, I, that was my main purpose in going through them. And as I kept going and getting more interested in going down the bypass, I found a considerable number of communications to Lincoln had crept in there, military and naval both. And I also found uh, replies from Lincoln. In other words, I was able to find both sides of any correspondence. And uh, <coughs> I took time and spent about four years going over these records, pulling out letters to Lincoln, letters by Lincoln. And when uh, they were doing their work on the comprehensive works of Abraham Lincoln, I made a list of all the Lincoln letters that I had found and sent them down to Springfield. I think they used them. I think they were possibly spared a tremendous amount of time saving by reference to my source material, which they would have found, but I had already found and saved them the trouble of doing. Uh, you must remember that Nicolay and Hay came out with their works uh, in the 80s. And we know that Robert Lincoln had a red pencil working on Nicolay and Hay. But there was something in those papers that he didn't like. Nicolay and Hay couldn't use them. And much of the material, as shown in Nicolay and was emasculated. The Robert Lincoln papers made available to the Abraham Lincoln Association has shown a lot of corrections which have come into the published works as we know them now. Some of the inaccuracies were, collected, were corrected. The official records were being published before and after Nicolay and Hay were finished. Nicolay and Hay weren't interested in the papers to Lincoln. They had no place in Lincoln's works. So anything that was to Lincoln was retained in its almost perfect form, except for minor errors and, and copying. And a great deal of information about what Lincoln has done is found in these letters to Lincoln. And I have compiled them. And someday, if Ralph Newman can find me a publisher, they might be published. I have a book here, which is one of four, just on letters to and from Lincoln. And the thing that has struck me in going through all these things is that in the naval records, there were only 60 documents that had Lincoln's name to them. It shows that he was much more interested in army affairs. 
I have been able to put the jigsaw together of a lot of one-way traffic, you might speak, answers to and from Lincoln, uh, by stuff I found in there. I found McClellan stuff that, that uh, will go a long way to refute some of the theories of his incompetency and uh, uh, disloyalty, you might say, to Lincoln. That's a long subject, which I'm not going to get into. But I know that if I had the time and the money, I would go down to Washington and I would spend time in the National Archives, probably a summer or two, and get to look at some of those papers I didn't use. And I'm certain, just, well, well the, the laws of probability would, would, would almost guarantee me to find a lot of material that would go a long way to solving some of these mysteries that still exist, some unanswered questions. Lincoln's uh, military leadership, for example. Some people say he was a genius. Others say he should never have interfered. I think that we could find so much material in these papers that would prove that that uh, one way or the other to the satisfaction of, of a trained historian. So I think that there is plenty still to be found about Abraham Lincoln. For a moment, I thought... For a moment, I thought that umpire Clem would have to call Joe out, but he hit that three-and-two pitch. <laughs> to continue what seems to be my reading of Jim Randall's essay... He said, to interpret will be to avoid merely looking for the familiar. It will mean seeing things anew, judging not by what secondary writers have said, but by a fresh viewing of sources. Some of the reinterpretation must come from Southern scholars. Our next speaker, also a former president of the Roundtable, has been interested in the material in the National Archives. He has spoken to this organization on many occasions, and I never recall his talking to us on a non-controversial subject. I suspect if he were ever announced to speak on a non-controversial subject, he wouldn't show up. I have reason to suspect that perhaps at times he and Ralph Korngold haven't seen eye to eye except on the thorough delight arguing with each other. <coughs> and I am very happy to present and get out of the way of Seymour Frank. Well, before I say anything about what I want to talk about, I have a message for you from Otto Eisenstein. It's Otto's opinion that tonight's subject really should be when will the book-buying public be disgusted with the tripe that's being fed them on the Lincoln theme? Otto says that we ought to do something about it. What he has in mind, I didn't clearly understand. But uh, don't let me sway your judgment. If at the end of the evening you decide to create some Will Hay type of a job, I'll take the office if the salary's right. While we were sitting here this evening, Ralph and I were talking. 
and Ralph accused me of being a Confederate. So before I get going, I want to take on Ralph for just a minute. Please be kind to Ralph. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, before giving my views, I would like to briefly, egotistically, review the basis of my conclusions. I have read the Congressional Globe page by page during the war years until I've been blue in the face. I have gone through the official records page by page and disregarding any attempt to follow, to follow an index until I ran across things that I thought might be pertinent. I am primarily concerned with the conspiracy trial, but I felt before I could draw any conclusions as to the conspiracy trial in view of the fact that the very thesis that has been expounded on the subject, I should know something of the background of the struggle that took place within the administration during the war years. As a result, I read a lot. I wish I remembered some of the things I read. I have no prepared paper tonight. Fact is, I'm going off my subject. But when I got through reading, I had what I thought convinced me a fairly good picture of that struggle between Lincoln and the elements of the minority Republican Party. And as I tortured my way through the Congressional Globe, I began to appreciate the greatness of the man. And that's why my conclusions must disagree with Ralph's. I think nowhere in the pages of American history can you find a man, and I'm not irreverent, more Christ-like than Abraham Lincoln. I don't share with Ralph's conclusions, and I could, if I had him alone, spend hours explaining why, and I doubt if I'd convince him or he'd convince me. Lord Charmwood, whom Ralph has quoted, and Mr. Stephenson, and I've read this years and years ago, agreed tentatively on a definition of Lincoln. One of the two, I don't know which, said Lincoln was genius, and the other said Lincoln was a genius. So that's why I can't very rec well reconcile the thought expressed by Ralph as a conclusion of Charmwood's. Uh, race prejudices? That, that is unwarranted in view of the record. Fugitive slaves? That's a question of whether the man was more interested in carrying out the wishes of a minority group of his party in forcing a war or saving the Union. That is debatable. And before you get through, I think you will see that Lincoln never, never was inconsistent to his basic beliefs and basic philosophies. The Emancipation Proclamation, that's a subject we could well debate. It was really much less than everybody, or rather the layman, thinks it is. It was based on a need that Lincoln thought was present at that time. Thaddeus Stevens or nobody else could have rushed that. When he got ready, he did it. And he did it, and he told Blair at that time, and you'll bear me out. When Blair said to him, this means we lose the fall elections, he said, so be it. And they did lose the fall elections. But 
My concern is with the Lincoln theme, and I'm going to be very brief. To understand Lincoln and the Lincoln theme, we must know more about some of the minor characters with whom he associated. Minor characters, Ben Wade, George Julian, Stevens, the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde of American politics, Stanton. We require definitive biographies on those gentlemen. We must know more about David Davis, that great champion of personal liberty, that believer in the sacredness of the Constitution, that man of guts and principle that faced a critical world with his Milligan decision. Some of these things are being written. Let's hope they're complete within a few years and they're definitive. After thing, books of the, about these people have been written and other phases of Lincoln's war years covered, then somebody might do the ideal job of taking all of this, putting it into a melting pot, and adding to our knowledge of Lincoln. And in my opinion, he will emerge as a result of the process a greater idealist than we at present can conceive him to be. Thank you. You're either getting mellow or... I'm getting mellow. Soft. Soft. These are the days to get him in the court, lawyers. He's not the same fella. <laughs> Many uh, of us who have been lost in the Civil War tend to forget another group of people that were on this American continent at the same time. And our next speaker is the authority, as far as the Civil War is concerned, on this phase of our history. He is so much of an authority that recently, when the Sac and Fox Indians thought they might revive negotiations on a certain treaty signed in 1832, ceding certain Iowa lands, and sued the government, he was employed as a government expert. I was somewhat interested because I happened to own at the time the original treaty ending the Black Hawk War, which I have since sold. But I think that the question of the American Indian during the Civil War, Lincoln's relationship to them, is the most fascinating one. And we could think of no one better equipped to discuss the subject here tonight than Don Russell. Mr. Korngold has spoken of Lincoln's racial prejudice regarding the Negro. I'm just here to ask questions. I haven't any conclusions. Did he also, or did he, if he did not also, have a prejudice against the Indians? Or did he care anything about them? Uh, 
I have not been able to determine very much. We, uh, Ralph Newman mentioned my affair in regard to the Black Hawk War, which involved Illinois, by the way, as well as Iowa. In this particular case that I was concerned with was uh, almost entirely concerned with Illinois. Uh, Lincoln enlisted three times in that Black Hawk War. There were three periods of service, a, a general period, then uh, certain ones were asked to stay for, uh, to cover a limited period until the new levy could be raised. And Lincoln served through all through all through the three services that Illinois militia were called upon in that war. A, a thing that very few people did, I think. In fact, the the second call was very small. And uh, I cannot find that uh, Lincoln ever expressed any particular opinion as to the merits of that war. Perhaps some of you could tell me more about that than I know. Uh, was, did he consider that he was performing a great service, that he was suppressing the Indians? Should he suppress them? Was he merely serving his country because it called upon him? Or uh, was it uh, a part of his political career that didn't make much difference? I don't know. Uh, as he became president, <clears throat> All of us are very familiar with the horde of office seekers that descended upon him. And uh, one of the important blocks of offices he had to fill was that of Indian agents. And I presume a number of these office seekers came away with those positions. During the Civil War, I think few of you realize how much trouble we had with the Indians. Most of you know that there was a considerable outbreak in Minnesota, uh, that Lincoln intervened when uh, a court up there sentenced, I am informed 310, I didn't check this, Indians to death. I know Lincoln cut it down, whatever the number was, to 38, but they did hang 38 Indians, and whether they were guilty of anything more than any other Indians fighting the United States, I don't know. Uh, there were, an expedition of punishment was sent into Dakota then the following year against the Sioux. There was the Sand Creek Massacre, so-called, in Colorado territory at that time. There was considerable trouble, Kit Carson fighting the Navajos, uh, uh, trouble along the Overland Trail. Uh, practically all Indian tribes were in unrest. It's been ascribed largely to the fact that the troops were withdrawn to fight the war. The upshot was we had more troops out there than we ever had in the first place. Was this uh, activity on the part of the Indians something that could have been prevented had Lincoln appointed adequate Indian agents had he realized something about the Indian problem? Or had he done something? I'm, I'm asking these questions. It's a great, it's a field that I think has never been touched so far as I know. And I don't think it is entirely unimportant. Uh, 
we fought the Indians for 30 more years, and most of that fighting had its origins in the Civil War period. Uh, would it, would a better policy at that time have prevented all that? Could, uh, did Lincoln give it any attention, or did he just merely neglect it? I think there's a feel there that maybe a minor aspect in a way, but uh, one that certainly shows we don't know all there is to know about Lincoln's handling of the presidency, particularly in what we might regard as a more domestic field. Perhaps we have paid too much attention to the Civil War and too little to some other aspects of of administration and policy. It has been said that the Indian agency appointed were very bad, and uh, we know that they were very bad subsequently, and in Grant's administration, he attempted to reform the thing by turning it over to the churches, which didn't prove too good either. Uh, Did that situation arise because of a lot of greedy Republicans seeking office and getting them without much consideration for their abilities? Gentlemen, I leave it to you. It's something that I don't know much about. We're making history at the round table. We have a degree of mildness set in, and then we have members who admit they don't know much about something. (laughs) But when Don admits he don't know much about something, it merely proves that he knows more than we do. I forgot to reply when Seymour uh, carried the message of Otto Eisenschimmel here. He seemed to be pointing a dagger directly at my bank book, where he said that too much tripe had been published in Lincoln Field. I, I happen to agree entirely with Otto that it is too much. And in the kindest way, I merely mention the fact that he has written four books on the same <laughs> subject. <laughs> It's most appropriate that our last speaker was a person who was present at the first meeting of this organization, as were other members who were on the program tonight. He was the speaker at either our second or third meeting of this organization and has spoken on several occasions since. He was inevitably a president of this organization. His particular field of interest, though he may not choose to discuss it tonight, has always been Lincoln and the journalists, Lincoln and the press. He spoke to us once on Wilbur Fisk's story on the Chicago Times, the old Chicago Times. He's addressed us on Joe Medill. I believe his topic was Joe Medill's war. And he has spoken about Charles A. Dana. His talk will complete the formal portion of this evening's programming that we had these speakers specifically lined up to discuss the topic. However, I mentioned the fact that when he is through, The subject is open to all of you. With just the same restrictions, the same conditions prevail, we want you to speak from up here so that we can have it on the tape. I'm very happy to present 
Elmer Gertz. Ralph, it's evident that you're not a lawyer or you would know that there's a constitutional provision against cruel and unusual punishment. First of all, it's cruel and unusual punishment to have any lawyer as the last speaker, and it's even more cruel and unusual to subject any audience to this kind of treatment. I've reached a conclusion, however. I don't think the Lincoln theme has been exhausted. It's simply exhausting in large doses. <laughs> now, we have had a difficulty in the Lincoln theme, as in many other fields, because we've had two extremes of credulity. A very wise English friend of mine said, it is as much a form of credulity to believe nothing as to believe everything. Well, most of the Lincoln writers either believe everything or they believe nothing, and both extremes are bad. Actually, in discussing the Lincoln theme, we have to have the kind of moderation that was characteristic of Lincoln himself. You can't paint him in either black or white. He's like most of us, a person of mixed impulses, mixed achievement, mixed character. It seems to me that in drawing the larger picture, most of the writers on Lincoln have missed some of the most important elements of his life. And one of them happens to be in the particular field that Ralph mentioned I'm concerned with, the journalism of the Civil War. Lincoln, more than any man who has ever been president of the United States, was addicted to newspaper reading. He himself said he read more newspapers than any man ought to. In his younger days, he would subscribe to every paper that he could afford to and read those he, he couldn't subscribe to. He subscribed to so many papers that he concealed their number from his wife. He had phony subscriptions and other people's names intended for himself. And there have been some slight efforts to write about Lincoln and journalism, but they seem to stop with one man. Everyone who has the ambition to write of Lincoln and the press writes another book about Horace Greeley. And then that's the end of Lincoln and journalism, when it's really only the beginning. Even in the Greeley books, the books tending to deal with Lincoln's relations with Greeley, the theme isn't really covered. People manage to write about Greeley while ignoring the most important individual in Greeley's life and the link, in a way, between him and Lincoln. And that's Charles A. Dana, one of the characters in whom I have been interested. I've read, I think, every book on Greeley that's come out. And without exception, they all slight or ignore, some hard to even mention, the role of Dana in the life of Greeley. And they ignore the fact that when Lincoln and Stanton wanted someone who could really cover the war for them, be their eyes and ears, they chose a great journalist like Charles A. Dana. And the role of Charles A. Dana as the eyes of the government at the front has never been covered adequately. I might say this. I have written an unpublished book in Dana, and I'd be the first to confess that in that unpublished book, Dana's role isn't properly covered. For this very good reason, most of the sources on this particular aspect of Lincoln's career are lost or misplaced. For one thing, there was a fire in Dana's home, destroying a large part of the record. 
For another thing, Dana led too busy a life to write his recollections. And for another thing, he was too prejudiced and unobjective a man to tell the complete truth about his relations with Lincoln or Grant or anyone else. Even the so-called recollections of Dana weren't actually written by him. They were ghost-written by Tarbell. So we start with that particular aspect of Lincoln's career, not covered and possibly never being able to be covered. We have this kind of situation. Almost every journalist who wrote of his experience during the Civil War period, his experiences with Lincoln, wrote about being treated unfairly by this general or that, or being deprived of sources of news. There was favoritism to the worst possible extent. Some journalists, like Young, directly accused Dana, who was Lincoln's man and Stanton's man, of giving vent to the hatred Dana began to feel for the New York Tribune in particular after his resignation was forced by Greeley. Greeley decided suddenly that either Dana or he had to leave, and the board of directors chose to have Dana leave. And there's a good deal of evidence, which is scarcely touched upon in any book on Lincoln that I've seen, of Dana, with the sanction of the administration, doing everything possible to thwart the New York Tribune during the course of the war. And there were other instances of that kind of thing. It's an almost forgotten and almost completely ignored segment of Civil War history and Lincoln history. And it's time that that was covered adequately by someone, perhaps by a group of people, not in a spirit of undue criticism or in a spirit of idolatry, but simply in the spirit of arriving at the facts. The Civil War was probably the first modern war covered in a professional way by the press. With all the imperfections of its covering, there was an honest effort made, an effort which was emulated and improved on in other wars. And that's the very aspect of the Civil War and of Lincoln's life that is least covered. And I'm sure that if one examined into other aspects of Lincoln's career, if one did what Lincoln said we ought to do, disenthrall ourselves, we'd have much better histories of the Civil War and a more human Lincoln. Now, I look forward, as Ralph does, to some lively discussion from the floor. And I don't mind if anybody throws the first spitball at me or at anyone else. We may be good at dodging or not. And I think we ought to get into a really lively discussion, Ralph. Thank you. Gentlemen, it's your inning. Abe? Mr. Geldhoff? Yes? You gentlemen who don't know Mr. Geldhoff, he has been a member of the round table for many years. He's a distinguished member of the press who might himself correct some of the omissions in history that Mr. Gertz points out. Abe Geldhoff. Well, I want to correct one of the omissions, but I, I'd like to learn some more about it. Among the unpleasant facets of Lincoln's life that Mr. Korngold has mentioned, is one that always has puzzled me, and that has been completely ignored by the biographers. Ignored almost entirely, to the point where it seems to be a conspiracy of silence. And that is the fact that Lincoln 
hated his own father. Now I say he hated him because there are only two emotions a man can hold toward his father. You either love him or you hate him. There's no middle ground. The records show that Lincoln had no love for his father. Now they, some of the sentimental biographers, such as Ida, Ida Tarbell, Dr. Barton, Carl Sandberg, even Dr. Randall and Mrs. Randall, would have you believe that Lincoln supported his father and his mother for many years and was always very good to them and took good care of them. But the facts don't bear them out. Lincoln left the parental home in 1831. His father gave him his time, as we called it in those days, and he went to New Salem, as you all know. The old man lived for 20 years thereafter. He died on January 17, 1851. For 10 years of that time, Lincoln was a bachelor, lived in Springfield, traveled the circuit, rode around the, uh, the Eighth Circuit from all those adjoining counties, including Coles County, where the old man was living. Uh, Charleston was the capital of Coles County, only eight miles <coughs> from the old man's farm. And yet, uh, Harry Pratt can bear me out if, I, if I'm wrong in this, I, I at least haven't been able to find a single record in any of the biographies or even in the, uh, the uh, uh, chronological books that uh, Mr. Pratt and Ben Thomas and uh, Paul Angle turned out. I can't find that Lincoln ever visited the old man in his farm home in Coles County until after he was elected president, when the old man, of course, was dead. Now, that was only 70 or 80 miles. Lincoln, Lincoln once went to, uh, to try a suit in Coles County, in, in Charleston, the capital, which is only eight miles away. He won the suit. It was a suit for, for slander. Somebody had called Lincoln's client a horse thief. And Lincoln got him a verdict of a couple <coughs> hundred dollars, and he got $35 as a fee. Instead of traveling the eight miles down to the old man's home to give him this $35, Lincoln left the money on deposit in the county courthouse at Charleston with instructions that the old man should come and get it, which the old man did. He trudged those eight miles up to, to Charleston and, and collected that $35. I can only find one other evidence that Lincoln never sent him any money. That was when he sent him $20 from Washington when he was in Congress to help the old man uh, save his farm from being mortgaged, <coughs> from losing his farm on a mortgage. Now, he must have, he must have visited Lincoln, uh, Tom Lincoln during that 20 years, but there's no record of it. Herndon doesn't mention it. <coughs> Herndon, who would, who'd traveled the circuit with Lincoln, who, who was with him day after day, never mentions the fact uh, of Lincoln visiting the old man in, in, uh, on his farm at, in Coles <coughs> County. Uh, none of the other biographers mention it. The only one, I'm glad to say, he's a member of this organization, <coughs> who mentions the fact that Lincoln didn't even attend his father's funeral is Ben Thomas. Thomas points out <coughs> that Lincoln did not go to the funeral. Not only that, he wrote that uh, peculiar letter when John Johnstone, his stepbrother, wrote him that his father was dying. You remember that peculiar, peculiarly worded letter that Lincoln wrote? Uh, I'm too busy to come to, uh, to see the old man, and uh, Mary Lincoln is, is sick in bed. Matter of fact, <coughs> the sickness was merely childbirth because Willie had been born about a month previous. And he said that it would be more painful than anything else if I come down to see the old man now. Well, how could it be painful to the old man to see the, to see the boy whom he loved and cherished for all those years and who was practically pining away to see him? <coughs> it must have been, as Lincoln meant, it would be painful to him. Anyway, he didn't go down. And not only that, in this same letter, he wrote a very uncharacteristic 
letter. He said, I... He wrote a very uncharacteristic letter. He said, I, I can't come, but trust in God. God who counts the fall of the sparrow and counts the hairs in the human head. You remember that letter. Now, that wasn't characteristic at all of Lincoln. He didn't believe in that sort of a God that counted the hairs in the human head. That was a, uh, it was a cruel letter. As Ben Thomas says, I, I <coughs> got Ben's quote here. on January 15, 1851. Uh, by the way, Ben is wrong there, Harry. You might tell him that it was the 17th, not the 15th. Thomas Lincoln died in Coles County. <coughs> Lincoln did not attend his father's funeral. And the letter of reassurance that he sent during the old man's last illness had an unconvincing tone. One cannot escape the feeling that Lincoln had no real affection for his father and could not dissimulate about it. Tom Lincoln had offered him scant encouragement in his efforts to make something of himself. Lincoln's inability to make even a pretense of affection for his father was in keeping with his fundamental honesty. Well, that's undoubtedly true. At the same time, why was it that Lincoln had this, this strange feeling for his father? You can't blame it on Mary Lincoln, mother-in-law angle, because he was only married for, for 10 years of that 20 years. <clears throat> you can't blame it on the fact that... <coughs> The old man had used the paddle on him occasionally, because we all went through that. We don't hate our fathers because we used the paddle on us a little. But there was some strange reason. And <clears throat> it wasn't, as I say, it wasn't until after the old man had died and Lincoln had been elected president in 1861 that he visited his stepmother in the old Coles County farm. And he went this far. He told her, Herndon says, that he went to the, to the old man's grave, which had been neglected for 10 years. In other words, Abe Lincoln had neglected his own father's grave for all that time. Obviously, hadn't been there. So he told uh, Sarah Bush Lincoln that he was going to put a stone, a marker, on the grave. But it wasn't until many years later that Robert Todd Lincoln put a monument on the graves of Tom Lincoln and Sarah Bush Lincoln. Lincoln had gone to the White House and forgotten all about it. Now, why, is, why was that? I want to know why. What was the reason? That no, nobody's ever done any research on that. Maybe it's too late. Maybe we can't find out. Maybe Harry Pratt can tell us that Lincoln did visit his father. <coughs> I hope he can. I hope he can put a more favorable light on that situation. It would seem that we ought to add to our catalog of books needed in the Lincoln theme a competent psychiatric examination. Uh, Harry, would you want to comment on anything of this one? All right. I don't want to comment on No, but on your own subject, Mr. Harold Eisenstein, one of the members of the executive committee of this organization, and an attorney. And a gentleman. He's not an attorney. Ah, it must be. I am strictly an amateur in this field, although I've been interested in it for a considerable period of time. In Hebrew, we have a word, Am Ha'oretz, which is a people of the ground. Uh, it has a second meaning, meaning illiterate and ignoramus. I speak as a person of the ground. 
I hope, rather than the other. I've listened to both sides of the argument here, and uh, I was perhaps a little disillusioned for this reason. Why must we either prove that the Lincoln myth to have been a myth, and that he was a person of, of clay with feet stuck deep into the ground and uh, his head not so high in the clouds? Or why must we prove him to be a big man, an individual who had tremendous stature? Uh, none of our historians here uh, seem to do anything except that there were fields that needed interpretation, fields that needed study uh, down at the grassroots to prove certain things. To me, the Lincoln theme, I think, is greater than that. In addition to studying Lincoln with the mind, I think you must interpret Lincoln through your heart to really have any meaning for you. And therefore, uh, I searched myself to try and find why the Lincoln theme has not been exhausted in my own heart and in my own mind. And there was some way, there was something there that I couldn't express. I found it in this issue of the Lincoln Herald. And I think it expresses its, uh, the reasons for me, as well as for most of you, even though in many instances, I think in your cases, it may be subconsciously. Because most of you wouldn't spend the time merely to be historians of something that has been dead, a period that passed a long time ago, unless there was something there that kept constantly reoccurring to you at all times. And I'm quoting from an article that was published, they say, in the fall of 1953 in the Lincoln Herald uh, by Philip M. Benjamin in connection with the George Gray Bernard Lincoln controversy. Apparently they had controversies about Lincoln some time ago, too. Uh, he says this, the purpose of this paper is not to attempt an aesthetic evaluation of an interpretation in bronze of the character of Abraham Lincoln, nor to sit in judgment upon the vilifiers of Bernard, though one is inevitably drawn to his defense by the abuse heaped upon him. It is rather to emphasize the value to each succeeding generation of studying Lincoln about Lincoln, of interpreting him in the light of our own lives, of attempting to discover for ourselves how persistently to all generations he embodies the essence of American democracy. Thank you. I think we should be grateful to Harold for temporarily at least taking our attention away from perhaps some of the minutiae in the Lincoln field to what is obviously the very one of the very great overall reasons for our interest. I am looking for people well, let's get people Bill, first of all, people who haven't appeared in the program. Jay? Well, <coughs> Okay, here, here, come on.
come around there? Can no. Right well, you have to come around here. We'll work on it. Hmm. You can turn it. You notice the attorneys don't seem at a loss for words. They're, they're always up here now. I, I, I'm, I'm just a conduit here. Good. Well, I look it up. Most of <laughs> D-U-I-T. Most of the speakers have stressed the particular fields in which they think there's some reason for writing about the Lincoln period or about Lincoln himself. I think that the most important reason and the most important requirement from now on for a good many years is that Lincoln and the Lincoln era is a part of history. And it's fundamental that all history has to be reappraised at intervals and kept on being reappraised in the light of things that are found and written about. And that will go on forever. I just want to refer to the one person who I think knows most about that, a, very, a great American historian and a Lincoln scholar who at a meeting of the Society of American Archivists made a talk on the subject, should American history be rewritten? And here's what he said. The idea that history can ever be so well written that it does not need rewriting can be held only by those foolish people who think that history can ever ascertain exact truth. It cannot. We can go further than the assertion of that truism. We can say, fortunate for history, that it cannot attain exact truth. If history were a photograph of the past, it would be flat, uninspiring. Happily, it is a painting. And like all works of art, it fails of the highest truth unless imagination and ideas are mixed with the paints. A hundred photographs of London Bridge look alike and convey altogether a very slight percentage of the truth. But Turner's Thames and Whistler's Thames, though utterly different, both convey the river with a deeper truth. This is from a statement made by Alan Nevins, who is a member of the Round Table, an eminent historian, and a Pulitzer Prize winner. Now, it seems to me that our discussion here of what fields you can write in Lincoln about falls into insignificance when you consider the fact that the, this part of history, like all other parts of history, are always ripe for reappraisal and from time to time will always be reappraised. And so it's my judgment and my belief that there will never be a time when there won't be things written about Lincoln in the Civil War period if, if for no other reason than to reappraise that period in the light of what has been discovered by both the historians and the amateurs who told you tonight what they hope to discover for, uh, in, in the Lincoln story. Thank you. Marshal? Mr. Rissman. I can't contribute much about Lincoln except to point out a strange coincidence. Uh, Harold Eisenstein is quoted from a magazine that I got in the mail about three, four days ago. Mr. Fox is quoted from a magazine Saturday on, Review, on Saturday Review and newsstand about two weeks ago. Time magazine this week carries an article about some tablets that they discovered of the Old Testament. 
And uh, I can't quote from it because I didn't have it. But the coincidence is that there are a lot of people who seem to be thinking about the same thing we are. Uh, it seems that these tablets that they discovered over in Jordan might mean, in, although on a minor scale, that the Bible itself is going to be corrected, which may or may not prove that nothing regarding research in history or any of the fields of the intellect uh, are ever inexhaustible. Well, gentlemen, this... Uh, I ought to have a chance to pitch something in here. May I suggest that we need, in the Lincoln Field, more competent professional tools for the study of the subject. We have just had presented to us the collected writings of Mr. Lincoln, the index, which will be a magnificent working tool, we hope, will come out sometime this year. We also hope. It has been delayed a few times. Joe Eisendrath has pointed out that we are very much in need of a compilation of the correspondence of Mr. Lincoln, the letters Mr. Lincoln received. Two volumes, a very sketchy selection of the Lincoln Papers edited by David Mearns were produced several years ago. And Mr. Mearns is going to continue that, but that is merely a selective job. We do need the correspondence of Abraham Lincoln. <coughs> We've quoted from several periodicals here tonight a competent bibliography of periodical writings relating to Abraham Lincoln is most certainly needed, and I suspect that perhaps in the not-too-distant future the Illinois State Historical Library may attempt it. And despite the fact that in 1939 the most ambitious bibliographical pro project in the Lincoln Field, the two-volume bibliography edited by J. Monahan was completed. That work really remains to be done. The Monahan bibliography, while an excellent catalog of the holdings of most of the major collections in the country, is not a professional bibliography. It does not, for the collector, it does not indicate how to tell editions apart. It is not critical. It is well-intentioned, but just not professionally competent. Now, to sum up tonight, it is our general feeling that we need specific biographies within the Lincoln field. It's also encouraging to know that many of the things suggested are in the process of being done. Biography of Stanton is being written by Ben Thomas, and I'm certain that he will supply and close this great gap in our Lincoln literature. The biography of David Davis, I'm certain, is in competent hands than those of Willard King. Mr. Korngold is doing Thaddeus Stevens. Biographies of Ben Wade, two biographies of Ben Wade are in the process of being done. And David Donald, who wrote a superb life of Billy Herndon, is now working on Charles Sumner. We have suggested that among the subjects to be tackled in the Lincoln field and needing more specific treatment are Lincoln and civil rights, Lincoln and the emancipation problem. It has still been suggested by some that perhaps the subject of the assassination is not yet exhausted. There'll be two, there are two books out this spring on the subject. I find that they contribute nothing. One of them, the book on Mary Surratt, does not offer as much as the 
first book on the subject printed in 1895, and the other book is a reprint of a book that was issued in 1865. We agree that temporarily, perhaps, the subject of Lincoln biographies done. For our time, the Thomas and Sandberg biographies, the Randall book, uh, do seemingly cover the field. But we all agree that Lincoln, the life of Lincoln will be rewritten for every generation. Perhaps I can close by quoting not from Jim Randall's article, but from this recent article on the inexhaustible Lincoln that appeared in the South Atlantic Quarterly. After discussing the new tools that have been written and the complete works and the other excellent books, the author, Mr. Woody, says, and just as one is beginning to think that the complete Lincoln has been revealed, that the law of diminishing returns has set in on Lincoln's studies, a significant bit of new information, a fresh interpretation of a neglected phase appears on the horizon, and the quest of Lincoln sets off in a new direction. It may be that instead of reaching the end of the search with the appearance of these notable volumes, we are only at the beginning of the inexhaustible Lincoln theme. Thank you. Now, maybe I'll shock some of you here, but I'm convinced that if the truth about uh, the Civil War history will ever be written, it will not be written by academic historians. And I'll tell you why. Academic historians find it necessary to keep up their relations with the South, with Southern University, to such an extent that they cannot write the truth. To give you an example of it, about a year ago, I met at the home of a professor of the Northwestern University. I met with a very well-known historian. I'll not mention his name. He's one of the top historians. And we were discussing the Civil War period. And he said to me, you know, Korngold, I fully agree with you. Now, and I'm quoting him literally, that the Southern cause was, uh, and I agree with Grant, because Grant said that also, that the Southern cause was probably the worst cause for which man ever fought. But, he said, I wouldn't say it. And both the Northwestern University professor and I looked at him and I said, why wouldn't you say it? Well, he said, because you see, they fought so bravely for the cause. <coughs> Whereupon the professor of Northwestern University said, well, uh, sir, uh, wouldn't you say it about the Nazi student? Uh, they fought very bravely. And you wouldn't say that they, well, that uh, silenced him for a while. And then I said this to him. I said, now it seems to me that physical courage is in itself not a virtue. Physical courage may be the tool or the servant of virtue, but it may also be the tool or the servant of villainy. A lot of gangsters have a lot of physical courage, but that doesn't make them virtuous men. Well, he didn't say any more. Now, this man is one of the topmost men in American history. He tells us he wouldn't say it. And uh, books that I have read of his uh, proved to me that he wouldn't say. As a matter of fact, he 
covers up things more or less as far as the South is concerned. And that is a remarkable thing, that the truth about history is seldom said by academic historians. For example, in Switzerland, the foremost Swiss hero was William Tell. And about 175 years ago, a Lutheran preacher in Zurich found documents to the effect that William Tell had never existed. That it was a legend that came from Persia originally, went on to Finland, from there to Denmark, and then to Switzerland. Yet for 150 years almost, not until the beginning of this century, Swiss historians, even the greatest one of them, Johannes von Miller, kept on regarding him as a, uh, as a, because, as a great Swiss hero because they didn't want to tell the truth to the Swiss people. Until finally they thought, well, that was too much because German historians began to, to write about him, made fun of the Swiss historians, and then they decided to teach in the schools that William Tell was just a legend. And I am firmly convinced that if the truth is said about uh, the Civil War and about Lincoln, it will be said not by academic historians, but by amateur historians. And Ralph Korngold, you have just given us the subject for our roundtable discussion next year. Good night, gentlemen.